Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing and take your Bibles, turn, if you will, to the book of James. James chapter 1. We'll be continuing our study through the book of James this morning in James chapter 1, looking at verses 16 through 18. So James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in chapter 1, verse 18, or 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, this is our sixth study in this uh, little epistle. It's kind of like a stick of dynamite. Not dynamite, it's small but powerful. <laughs> our first study was an introduction to the book and We looked at verse 1 in that study where James identified himself and the original recipients of his letter and and gave a a brief word of greeting, literally one word, greetings. And then, as one one man said last Sunday after the service, James uh, came out swinging, and he hasn't stopped yet. And he began his letter by addressing the issue of trials. In verses 1 to 4, he addressed the believer's proper response to trials. In verses 5 to 8, he addressed the fact that we need God's wisdom in order to approach our trials properly. And then in verses 9 to 12, James gave us an illustration of this in practice when he talked about poverty and riches, which are commonly experienced trials. And then in verses 13 to 15, which we looked at last week, James changed from trials, which all Christians experience, to another kind of trouble, which is more subtle and much more difficult to handle, and that is the problem of temptation to sin. I mean, evidently, some of those James was writing to were not responding properly to the trials that they were called to endure, and, and of course, the easy answer for uh, their unbelief, their sinful attitudes and actions brought to the surface by their trials was, it's God's fault. They may not have said that directly, but he had placed them in circumstances which were simply too much for them, and so in a roundabout way, God was to blame. They were blaming God for their sin. But James says, no, God is not to blame. Temptation doesn't come from God. And he said in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God is not able to be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. He's holy. God is never the author of temptation or evil, never. Well, then where does temptation come from? Well, as we learned last week, the ultimate blame lies a lot closer to home. The root of the problem is our own evil. The problem with temptation lies in the nature of man, not with the nature of God. And so James said in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so James is crystal clear. The source of temptation is not God or or even the devil, though the devil certainly does tempt us. But we are lured and enticed by our own sinful desires, our own lusts. I mean, we are accountable and no one else. And then in verse 15, James addressed the process of temptation, and he did so, or he does so in terms of the birth of a baby. He said, then desire 
when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we should think of sin in that way. It is conceived in our hearts, and then it goes to our minds where uh, we play it out, and then it's given a place in our will, and and then at the right place and, and the right time, it's born. And it's born a killer. Because all kinds of deadly things come from sin. And so the process is desire, sin, and death. And that's why we can't play around with temptation. Because sinful desire gives birth, uh, sinful desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. And that's where James left us last week. Desire, sin, and death. It's pretty sobering. And James so far has said quite a bit about trials, testings, and temptations. And I think you would agree these are some pretty heavy issues. But necessary for believers so that we're not caught off guard by trials when we encounter them and temptations when they come, which they do on a daily basis. But James isn't content to just leave us here. He doesn't want to just leave us with desire, sin, and death. Because trials and temptations are not the only themes in the New Testament. I mean, sometimes (laughs) the impression we Christians give is that the most important lesson a a new believer can learn is expect trouble. And certainly we should expect trouble and, and know how to respond to it. But that's not all there is to the Christian life. No, I mean, the Christian life is, is so much more. James doesn't want us to be filled with discouragement and disappointment. And so now, after pointing out that God does not tempt us and is not the source of anything evil, he positively affirms that God is good. That God is good. He is so very good. And and all of his gifts are good. That, That God is the source of everything good. But he's not only the source of good, he is also, according to Paul, the one who is committed to making all things work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we can trust him in our trials. We can turn to him in our temptations because he's the source of everything good and he wants that which is good for you and I. I mean, James knew that doubting God's goodness is as old as the human race. When Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden and said to her, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He was casting doubt on the goodness of God. You know, is it really true that that God does not allow you to eat of all the trees of the garden? And the implication, of course, was that if God were truly good, He would have allowed Adam and Eve to eat of all the trees without so much as a single exception. But we don't have to be tempted by Satan to doubt or to question the goodness of God. I mean, when trials and difficulties come, when when sickness and disease comes, when a loved one dies or friends betray us or fail us, when conflict comes, we can be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. We can, be get, we can be tempted to think that, well, if God is good, why, why am I going through this? Or in the absence of some blessing, we can be tempted to think, well, if God is good, why, why doesn't he bless us with this thing or that? James doesn't want us to ever doubt God's goodness. Rather, he wants us to think of the greatness of God and the goodness of God. He wants us to consider all that we have, all the blessings of the goodness of God. And every believer can testify to God's goodness and love in their lives. I mean, can't we all testify to that? I mean, this short passage on the goodness of God is, is necessary and welcome in light of the previous verses on trials and temptations. I mean, James knew his readers needed a word of encouragement at this point. And so after an affectionate warning in verse 16, 
he's going to tell us three things about the goodness of God. That God is the source of all that is good in the first part of verse 17. And then in the second part of verse 17, that God is the unchanging source of all that is good. And then in verse 18, that God is the source of the supreme act of goodness. But first, an affectionate warning. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived is literally stop being deceived or stop deceiving yourselves. And the word deceived means uh, to lead astray or, or cause to wander. And the tense of this indicates that we should, under James, we should understand James to be saying, stop letting yourself be led astray. You know, stop letting yourself be deceived. And the warning indicates how seriously James is concerned about the spiritual safety of his readers. Now, as I mentioned last week, there's a difference of opinion among commentators as to whether verse 16 belongs with verses 13 to 15 or with verses 17 to 18. I'm kind of inclined to believe it belongs with verses 16 and 18, but honestly, uh, it can apply to both. Applying it to verses 17 and 18, it's a warning against a wrong view of of God's character. And James is warning his readers against allowing themselves to be deceived so that they doubt the goodness of God. But it may also refer back to the reminder about the source of temptation in verses 13 to 15. And in that case, it's a warning not to be deceived about the source of temptation. Because God doesn't tempt or entice us to sin. He's the author of salvation, not temptation. But whichever direction one applies it, verse 16 serves as a transition between verses 13 and 15 and verses 17 and 18. So like a bridge, it it really provides connections in both directions. And so having made clear that, that God could never be the originator of sin or temptation in verses 13 to 15, James turns now to the foundational truth that God is the source of all good gifts. In fact, he's the source of all that is good. In verses 16 to 18, you could say are are the positive side of the picture painted in verses 13 to 15. And you'll notice that James refers to his readers not simply as my brothers as he did back in verse 2, but rather here he refers to them as my beloved brothers. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And he uses this phrase, beloved brothers, three times in this letter. It's a warm expression of brotherly love that indicates James' attitude to his readers. I mean, he he regards them as, as true Christian brothers. I mean, he loves them. This speaks of the close relationship between James and his original readers. They they were the recipients of his heartfelt love. You see, James uh, was not a cold-hearted theologian just dispensing a dose of doctrine and saying, well, call me, you know, if you're not better in a week. No, by calling his readers my beloved brothers, James softened any impression of harshness. And throughout this letter, James has many hard things to say, you know, many hard-hitting rebukes. But he's careful to mix those with reminders of the love behind his letter. I mean, this letter and the the warnings and rebukes it contains were prompted by James' love for his readers. I mean, James tells them the truth because he loves them. He's not beating the sheep as if he didn't really believe they were Christians and, and they had to be beaten into submission, you know, beaten into towing the line. That's not it at all. James loves them, and so he speaks to them as a true pastor to a a flock of fellow believers for whom he has the deepest affection in the Lord. And this puts in perspective all the hard sayings. And he wanted them to know that, that God is not in heaven looking for ways to make us stumble. God is not indifferent to our situation. And far from being the one who tempts us, God in reality is the source of every good gift, one of the, the greatest of which is the new birth. And therefore the Lord is worthy of our complete trust and devotion. 
Because first of all, James tells us, God is the source of all that is good. Look now, if you will, at the first part of verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So what does, James tell to, what does James tell us comes from God? Good. I mean, this is, this is the heart of the text. You know, don't blame God. Temptation to sin doesn't come from him. Only good comes from God. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And literally, it says every good giving, every good giving and every perfect gift is from above. And that phrase asserts that all goodness comes from God. And it expresses the completeness of the goodness of God, both what he does and the way that he does it, both the gifts and the giving. You know, back in verse 5, James said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives. And in the original, the phrase, God who gives, emphasizes giving as a characteristic of God. And it, it reads literally, let him ask the constantly giving God. And here in verse 17, the concept of the constantly giving God is more fully developed. Now in our English text, we see the word gift is used twice in this verse. But in the Greek text, these are actually two different words. Two different words are used. The first word for gift emphasizes the act of giving. And it's used only twice in the New Testament, here and in Philippians 4.15. The word good, which means useful and beneficial in its effect, describes the giving. And then the second word for gift emphasizes not the act of giving, but rather the gift itself. And the word perfect means complete, lacking in nothing. It describes the ultimate, uh, the ultimate, you know, something that cannot be bettered. And so James is saying both the act of giving that is good and the perfect gift itself is from above. That's the source of it. It's from above. It comes from heaven rather than from earth. Now, certainly there's an element of good in, in human giving, and I suppose that we could say, I mean, all giving is good. But human giving is always marred or limited in some way. It may not be sincere. It may not come from pure motives. It may not be practical. It may not be sufficient. It may not be suitable. I mean, one thing is certain, all our giving is marred and limited by our sinful humanity. But in brilliant contrast to our giving... James says the gifts that come from above, heaven's giving and heaven's gifts, are perfect in every way. And perfect is one of the Bible's favorite words in describing the nature, character, and activity of God. Let me give you just a few examples. God's knowledge is perfect. Job speaks of the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge in Job 37. God's works are perfect. Speaking of God, Moses said in Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. God's will is perfect. I mean, Paul tells us this when he writes about testing and discerning God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. The word perfect, uh, or excuse me, his word is perfect. God's word is perfect. In one of the greatest passages in Scripture on the sufficiency of God's Word, King David said in Psalm 19.7, the law, which is synonymous for word. So the Word of the Lord is perfect. A statement which James emphatically underlines when he calls it the perfect law in chapter 1, verse 25. And so as we put all these together, we, we see this tremendous truth. Nothing good comes except from God, and nothing except God, or, and nothing except good comes from God because His giving and His gifts are perfect in every way. You see, the goodness of the giving and the perfection of the gift flows from the goodness and perfection of the one bestowing it. And that is why James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
And the Greek literally reads, from above is coming down. The present tense indicates this is a continuous truth. In other words, the perfect gift is always coming down. These, these gifts are constantly, continually descending in an unending stream. And that's amazing. Everything that is good, everything that is useful, beneficial, profitable, everything perfect, complete, lacking in nothing comes down from Him. I mean, earlier James wrote that this is true of wisdom. Now he teaches that it's not only true of wisdom, but also of all other good things that come from God. So it's almost as if James is telling his readers to make an inventory. It's as if uh, he were saying, you know, just look around. Just look around you. And make no mistake about it, everything that is good and useful and beneficial and profitable, all that is good comes from above. I mean, if it's good, it comes from God. I mean, think of it. I want you to think about all of the good that that all men enjoy. Not just believers, but, but all men, believers and unbelievers alike. Now keep in mind, the first sin the sinner ever commits deserves immediate death. Yet God is patient and long-suffering, and because of His common grace, the sinner lives, and he has life. And he has eyes to see and ears to hear and a mouth with which to speak and, and to sing and, and to communicate. He, he enjoys the beauty of creation, the blue skies above, the singing of the birds, the, the crash of the waves, the, the majesty of the mountains, the, the cool mountain streams, you know, the warmth of a fire in the winter, the verdant countryside in the spring, the, the cool of a breeze in the summer, and the beauty of the turning leaves in the fall. God made it all, and He gave it to us. And we enjoy freedom and health and energy, the, the people in our lives, parents who love us, family and friends, marriage, children, grandchildren, education, a sense of right and wrong, a vocation, you know, your job, the ability to earn an income, the ability to prosper, every talent and ability we have. These things just didn't come to us by chance. Jesus said, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Paul said, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The psalmist said in Psalm 104, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. I mean, what is the source of all the, the good things that we have enjoyed? All, I mean, all of these good things. I mean, fate didn't bring them into our lives. I mean, these and, and thousands of other things, too, came from above. But think about this. In addition to the good gifts of God's common grace that all men enjoy, think of all of the good gifts that we as Christians have received on top of that. Think of the greatest gift of all. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The Apostle Paul says, He, Christ, loved us and gave Himself for us. I mean, He is the God who gives Himself to every believer. And it's not simply that God gives gifts to all men, but that the Christian can say, God loves me. And so He has imputed my sin to His Holy Son, who took upon Himself the wrath of God I deserve. And He died in my place that I might receive forgiveness of sin and, and reconciliation with God. And He gave me the very righteousness of Christ. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the adoption of sonship, the inheritance of the saints, and, and the hope of heaven. I mean, the gift of eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is where the Christian life begins. In a gift from God, and, and what a gift it is. I mean, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and, and he's mine, and he's yours. The one who is the brightness of God's glory and the very express image of His person. And He's mine. He's yours. 
the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, my prophet, priest, and king, who will keep me from stumbling and present me blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy on that tremendous day. I mean, facing the future that the Christian has strong hopes and a single-minded devotion because God promises that these good and perfect gifts will never end. And He will supply all that we need. Not all our desires, nor will He answer every prayer for prosperity. But He will constantly lavish upon us the gifts that He determines are best. All we need to do His will. All we need to be conformed to the image of His Son and to persevere forever. And as believers, we have experienced such an abundance of God's good giving and His perfect gifts. And I think we forget and we just take it all for granted. Martin Luther wrote, I believe that God has created me in all that exists, that he has given me and still sustains my body and soul, all my limbs and my senses, my reason and all the faculties of my mind, together with food and clothing, house and home, family and possessions, that he provides me daily and abundantly with all the necessities of life, protects me from all danger, and preserves me from all evil. And that's certainly right. I mean, he gives us life and breath and, and every good thing. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. He's holding all things together by the word of his power. And he blesses us with uh, good gifts, a continual steady stream of good and perfect gift com- gifts coming down from the Father of lights. And there's not one person unbeliever and believer alike who has not received from God's hand an abundance of good and perfect gifts bestowed on him because the Lord is merciful and gracious and unfailingly generous. In fact, Luke tells us that God is even kind to the ungrateful and the evil. All that is good and perfect has come to us from above. Coming down James says, you'll notice the verse, from the Father of lights. Coming down from the Father of lights. Coming down, the tense indicates that each gift originated and was designed in heaven, and then these gifts keep on coming down from above in a continual stream. They just keep coming down. God does not give occasionally, he gives constantly. Even when we don't see his gifts, he's sending them. How do we know this? Because he tells us so, and we believe his word. And James says these gifts come down from the Father of lights, literally Father of the lights. And this title for God is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It is found in in, uh, some ancient Jewish literature such as uh, Philo and, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so James tells us that God is the Father, meaning that he is the originator of the lights, the lights, which refers to the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, the sources of light for the earth. And God's first spoken word recorded in the Bible was, let there be light. And the immediate obedience of the elements showed him to be the source of all natural light throughout the universe. In Jeremiah, we read, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. In Psalm 8, David speaks to God of the moon and the stars which you have set in place. The prophet Amos even names some of them and and says that God made the Pleiades and and Orion. And God himself is the eternal, uncreated light. And he is the creator of all the light sources in the universe. He is the father of the lights. He is their source of being. And the Bible tells us that they reflect the glory of their Creator. David said in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. And the heavens declare the glory of God. Not any kind of God either, but the one who is now revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. 
But these celestial lights not only declare the glory of God, they also declare the very nature and essence of God. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There is only goodness in God and no evil at all. You see, light and darkness correspond to good and evil. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. But the Father has sent His Son into the world, the true light that gives light to every man. God is the creator and the source of the heavenly lights. And they declare his very nature as light, but that's not all. They also speak to us of the fact that God is the source of all spiritual light. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul said, For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I mean, salvation is being, is being taken out of darkness into his marvelous light. And to become a Christian is to become light instead of darkness. And, and of that light, the light of eternal life, God is the sole and sovereign source. And these are just some of the truths that flow from James' statement about God's name, the Father of the heavenly lights, a phrase that is unique in Scripture, yet is backed up by biblical teaching from Genesis to Revelation. But God who made the heavenly lights is much greater than they are, because unlike those sources of light, which, magnificent as they are, can and do vary, and will eventually fade. But God's character, God's goodness, never changes. And that's the second thing that James wants us to see. God is the unchanging source of all goodness. Look back at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with, he says, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so James adds a a glorious dimension to our understanding of God's goodness by saying that there is no variation or shadow due to change with God. And the word for variation is used only here and nowhere else. And it means a change or variation from an established course or pattern. And the phrase shadow due to change means darkness caused by light being blocked due to change or, or turning. So it speaks of, of a shadow that is cast by turning. And so what is James talking about? Well, he is stressing for us how, or he's stressing for us the immutability of God. In other words, he is saying that God is unchanging, that he is unable to be changed, that God never changes. The sun, the moon, and the stars are in constant motion in the sky. They're always changing their positions to mark the times and seasons. And the movement of these heavenly lights casts earthly shadows that are forever shifting. The sun rises and sets, and in the process, it creates shadows, and sometimes it's even eclipsed. The stars vary in brilliance. The the light of the moon increases and, and decreases. One commentator said, As the earth, sun, moon, and stars move in their ordained courses, we observe the interplay of light and darkness, day and night, the longest and the shortest day of the year, the waning and the waxing of the moon, eclipses and the movement of the planets. Nature is subject to variation and change. Not so with God. In Him there is never such turning because of any change in His nature or purpose. Light varies. Shadows shift, but God is fixed. And the universe is constantly changing, but God does not. And through the prophet Malachi, the Lord declares, I, the Lord, do not change. And through the writer of Hebrews, we're assured that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, what an encouragement in our rapidly changing world. Because in our world, governments change, technology changes, people change, values and morals change. Yet in the midst of all of this change, we can be absolutely assured that our God never changes. Our God never varies one bit. 
God's nature and character are unchanging. He is always the same, and, and that means that He is always good. He is always good. He doesn't shift from good giving to occasional evil giving. <laughs> he never entices His children to do evil. All that He does is good. I mean, God does not have days when He has more goodness than other days. His goodness is always undiminished and unchanged. God doesn't change like the shifting shadows. Rather, His goodness is always at high noon. God is perpetually, constantly, consistently good. He never gets in a bad mood. He never changes for the worse, and He never changes for the better, because He is already perfectly and ultimately and wonderfully good in every way. And you can't get any better than God. His goodness is un changing. And if he could change for the better, that would mean that he wasn't ultimately good in the first place. But he is. As A.W. Pink puts it, God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. You see, the good news today, and the good news for all of eternity is this, God is infinitely good. He has never had and will never have more goodness than he has now. He is unchangeably good. He stands like an eternal sun in the cloudless sky, radiating unbroken goodness upon us. I mean, God is good. He has always been and he always will be. He can't can't be anything other than good. And this means that God is being good to us even when our circumstances seem to be screaming to us that he is not good. So, loved ones, though we encounter trials and troubles, and though we encounter many temptations, we can rest assured of this, that we have an unchanging, faithful Father who will never entice or tempt us to sin, but will always be good to us. He will always be good to us. Now, maybe you had an earthly father uh, who was anything but good to you. Or maybe he was only good on occasion. Our Heavenly Father will always be good to us. Always, without fail. And knowing this, then we can rejoice and sing, well, the hymn that we sang this morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Brothers and sisters, we live in constant change. And as one man said, our bodies bear inescapable testimony to that fact. (laughs) They sure do. But our world, too, is in constant change. But our text this morning encourages us with the unchangeable fact that God is good and He constantly rains goodness upon us. And that is good news. God is good and he He will always eternally be good to us. And so James has affirmed that God is the source of all that is good. He is the unchangeable source of all that is good. And if that was all that we had to say this morning, we could leave here today with with our hearts rejoicing and just overflowing. But James has more to say. He wants us to see that God is the source of the supreme act of goodness. You say, well, what is God's supreme act of goodness? Well, giving spiritual life to his people. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The New American Standard reads, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. The NIV reads, he chose to give us birth. So what is James telling us? Well, that in, that in contrast to death, which is brought forth after sin is conceived in our hearts and then acted upon, spiritual life 
is brought forth by the will of God. By the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. In other words, God is the source of our salvation, our new birth. Just as he is the source of of light, just as he is the source of all goodness, he is the source of our salvation. And we can call this the supreme act of God's goodness because we come into this world in a state of spiritual death, don't we? We are born spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And if we remain in that condition, Of course, we all know that spiritual death will eventually lead to eternal death, that is, eternal separation from God. And so God's gift of spiritual life must be called his supreme gift because it rescues us from the supreme tragedy. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul declared, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. But what does James tell us about this supreme expression of God's goodness? Well, first of all, is that it's the result of God's initiative or God's grace. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, unable to accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they were foolishness to us, and we were not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. And then according to Paul in Romans 3, we didn't understand, we were not seeking God, we had turned aside. In other words, we were going our own way. There was no fear of God in our eyes. We were walking or living, Paul says in Ephesians 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our condition. That's the condition of every unbeliever, spiritually dead. We had no awareness or understanding of sin, no desire to turn from it, and no power or resources to change if we wanted to. We didn't even know that we were dead. We were totally helpless and unable to bring ourselves to God, and no amount of religion, sincerity, church-going, Bible-reading, generosity, or service could ever make us right with or acceptable to God. We were fallen, hopeless, and helpless and on our way to an eternal hell. But, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I want you to note exactly what Paul says has happened to those of us who have become Christian. He does not say there in Ephesians 2 that we have been spiritually improved or morally strengthened or given a new vision or outlook. He does not say, as as some still do, that becoming a Christian is a matter of having our inherent goodness fanned into a flame. You know, that there's a little spark of life there, a little spark of goodness that's lying dormant that just has to be fanned fanned into a flame. No, not at all. Paul says nothing of the sort. What Paul says is that what happened to us is nothing less than a miracle because we were spiritually dead and then we were made spiritually alive. As Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This is what James is speaking to us about in this verse. We were born again. How? James says, of his own will, he brought us forth. By the exercise of God's sovereign will, he brought us forth into new life. It is not God who brings about the deadly sequence of lust, sin, and death. His will has made possible the very opposite. In fact, the words words of his own will might literally be translated, having made his decision. 
Having made his decision, decision, God chose to give us spiritual birth and life. The initiative, the impulse, the incentive all come from God. God is always the initiator. And his incentive, impulse, uh, and, and, and uh, initiative are affected by nothing whatsoever outside of his own perfect will. And that is the only way spiritual life could be given to those who are spiritually dead. Regeneration could only happen by the sovereign will and power of God, who is the only source and giver of spiritual life. Where else will you get spiritual life? There's none to be had anywhere else. God is the only source and giver of spiritual life. And John said in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, you say, well, what does that mean, John? Well, he tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of what? God. They were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. I mean, look, no child has ever been born into the world by its own will or plan, right? A child's conception, gestation, and birth are completely out of its consciousness and control. It is merely the pass, er, the child is merely the passive recipient of the will and the action of its parents. And just as certainly no person wills, much less creates new spiritual life and a nature within himself. The only way a spiritually dead person, which is all believers, can have spiritual life is for it to be given to him or her as a gift of God's grace. And nobody makes that clearer than the Apostle Paul, who having said that we were chosen by grace, then said, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Just as we could not will ourselves into physical life, so we cannot will ourselves into spiritual life. How can we? We're dead. One commentator said this of salvation. The origin of this good work is here declared. It is of God's own will, not by our skill or power, not from any good foreseen in us or done by us, but purely from the good will and grace of God. And then another man added, we are God's people because of a total act of grace rooted in God's unprompted goodness. It's God's will that is the cause of the new birth. James tells us, of his own will, he brought us forth. And the Greek word for brought forth is the same word used in verse 15. And there it brought forth death. Here, God brings forth life. Sin brought death. But God willed not to let us perish in sin, which he would have been completely just if he had done. But God willed not to let us perish in sin, and having willed it, God acted freely to save us. God was not forced to do it by any merit in us. If we had any merit, then it's not grace. God was not forced to do it by any merit in us. He did it of his own sovereign will and grace. His love to us was unmerited, unbought, and unsought. I mean, Paul in Romans 9, 15, 16 said this, For he says, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It was entirely voluntary on God's part. And you know what? This should absolutely cause us to fall down in worship. 
God brought us forth. I mean, this describes the fact of the new birth. It was God's will, his choice prior to our choice that determined ultimately our salvation. But there are many who who might say, yeah, but I just had this great desire to trust Christ before I ever knew anything about God's grace, and so I chose to put my faith in him. Well, of course you did. I mean, you certainly did, absolutely. And that is true from our side, from the human side of things. There was a point in time when we made a conscious decision to trust Christ alone for salvation. But that desire did not originate with you. Although the new birth takes place in a moment of time, it's set in motion before time began. Its beginning lies in eternity past, and the Scripture bears consistent testimony to this fact. The prophet Jeremiah records God as saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Even as he, God, chose us in him, or even as God chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then in chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, he said, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. You see, behind our desire to trust Christ and our conscious decision to do so, James is explaining that God exercised his eternal will, choosing you and I for himself. Just as Jesus expressed it, no one one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He also said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or as Paul puts it uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. As Jesus uh, said in John 3, the Spirit of God sovereignly moves, moves in where he wills and gives new birth to those whom he has predestined to salvation. Listen, our conscious experience of conversion, of of believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on our behalf, of, of committing our life to him, is all the consequence of God's sovereign will. It's the outworking of a miracle of regeneration that had its beginning in the eternal will of God before time ever began to exist. As Paul said in Romans 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One commentator calls this the secret story lying behind our conversion. And he said, we sometimes attempt to resist this truth, namely because we think that to believe this will somehow turn God into a cosmic monster and us into his robots. But such an idea is found nowhere in Scripture. Rather, the emphasis in the Bible is upon our spiritual deadness, the darkness of our knowledge, the reality that we do not even seek after God. The effects of the fall have not left us infirmed, but morally decadent, enslaved to sin, and helplessly inclined to sin. Without God demonstrating mercy toward us, we will never take the action to seek after him, nor to love him with our hearts. And of course, that's true because the Bible says we only love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so again, in the same way that our physical birth was the decision of our parents, Our spiritual birth ultimately is the decision of the Lord who graciously gives. Well, how does the Lord accomplish this work of the new birth or or regeneration in our lives? Well, we don't have to wonder. James tells us. Look back at verse 18. 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The instrument that God uses to bring us forth is the word of his truth. And in the broadest sense, the word of truth would be uh, the whole of God's word. But in a more restricted sense, according to Paul in uh, Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5, and 2 Timothy 2.15, the word of truth is the gospel. It's the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In Romans 10, 14, Paul said, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then he said a few verses later, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through what? The word of Christ or the word of God. You see, the teaching or preaching of the gospel is the means by which God affects spiritual life or regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration, and he uses the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he applies inwardly, bringing the sinner to life. He gives us new birth. It's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25. It is God's action that accomplishes this. Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And Peter also tells us, I think it's in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that it's God who has caused us to be born again. And we know that he did so through the instrumentality of the living and abiding word of God. And James just simply says it was through the word of truth. God causes the gospel to be externally preached to the unbeliever. And then by the the mysterious sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, the life-giving power of the gospel invades the deadness of the sinner's heart, breathing life into it. And the sinner suddenly uh, brought to life by this work of the Spirit now hears the external proclamation of the gospel and and now understands the gospel of Christ in, in order to believe. And then he gladly responds to the gospel by calling on the Lord to be saved. And everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have a wonderful illustration of this in the woman Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Luke tells us the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And of course, though it's not stated explicitly, we know that she believed because the next verse tells us that she was baptized. But God opened her heart. She was able to understand the things that Paul says. She was able to understand the gospel and then to respond to that. So by the work of the Spirit, the word of truth both or works both internally in awakening and externally in bringing the gospel message to the sinner as truth to be believed. And the sinner may not have even the faintest clue that this work has taken place secretly in his heart. All he knows is, is that he now understands that Christ died for him and that Christ is sufficient for him and that he is a sinner on his way to eternal hell, and God through Christ has provided for him a way to have his sin forgiven and come into a right relationship with God and receive eternal life. And the gospel is glorious to him. So he believes and is saved. And after explaining that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, Paul uses similar terms as James, using the analogy of God at creation, declaring, we've already, I've already quoted this verse, let me quote it again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, it's into the dark, dead hearts that the word of truth shines with all of the the blazing glory of our Redeemer to give understanding in light of the gospel proclaimed, and therefore salvation is all of God. It's not our good intentions. 
or our great minds or our fair motives that, that, that bring us to Christ. We weren't even seeking Christ. Paul says no one seeks after God. No one. I mean, John read this morning about Paul being struck down on, on the road to Damascus. Or maybe that was last week. I can't remember. This week, yeah. Paul wasn't seeking God. Quite the opposite. He was on his way to Damascus there to uh, arrest and persecute more Christians. But what happened? God intervened. In fact, knocked him to the dirt, knocked him to the ground. It's not our good intentions or our great minds. It's not because you were so much smarter than everybody else that one day you decided to follow Christ. It is God's doing through the word of truth bring us forth to life through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so what should this truth do to us? I mean, first of all, it should absolutely humble us to realize that God brought us forth by His Word in order that we might believe and be saved. And second, it should encourage us to know that our salvation is not dependent upon the whims of our will, but rather upon God's gracious work and by His own will. That's why our salvation is secure. Because it's based upon the will of God. If you think you're going to will yourself saved and keep yourself saved, that is so foolish. It's utterly foolish. No, our salvation is not dependent upon the whims of our will but upon God's gracious work by his own will. And third, it ought to encourage us in the work of evangelism to know that by the word of the truth, by the gospel, by the preaching or the sharing of the gospel, the Lord is pleased to awaken sinners and to bring them to life in Christ. And fourth, it should help each of us in the area of assurance, knowing that the immutable God has chosen us for himself. And what was God's purpose in all of this? Well, James tells us, look back at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And of course, first fruits is an expression that's taken from the Old Testament. And as you are aware, it referred to the first part of the harvest that was brought in and offered to God before the rest of the harvest could be used for ordinary purposes. The first and the best was, was harvested and then taken and given to God. And it was an expression that would have been particularly meaningful for James' audience, which was predominantly a Jewish Christian audience. And he's telling them that, you know, you're the first fruits. You know, these Jewish believers were, were the first fruits. They, they were the first of many more to come in the spiritual harvest God was beginning. And a great harvest, it's a great harvest that's still going on today. And James also may have had in mind the fact that, that all Christians are uh, first fruits in the sense that we are the first evidence of God's new creation that is to come. The new heaven and new earth after the present heaven and earth have been destroyed. And of course, uh, in our new life in Christ, we, we presently enjoy just a foretaste of that future glory. And so that's what's characteristic of God. He is a God who saves. And there's a great harvest that's taking place, and it has down through the centuries, and it's going to continue until the Lord comes back. And this is the God that James presents to us, not a God who tempts man to sin, but rather a God who is good. I mean, there is no goodness apart from him. And there's no changing in his goodness. He is the God who gives good and perfect gifts. And the supreme gift of his goodness to us is salvation. And so we can all 
you know, declare with, with glad and rejoicing hearts, God is good. He is so good to us. You know, having last week's study and this week's study in mind, perhaps some of you uh, are currently going through, uh, you know, very difficult trying times. And maybe you're beginning to wonder what God is doing and perhaps you're even beginning to doubt God's goodness. Well, first of all, let me encourage you to remind yourself of the character of God. You know, try just for a few moments to look away from the heartache and the trial. Focus on the Lord and remind yourself that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And then recall God's unchanging character and his enduring love. Remind yourself that God is in control, that he loves us, and he never makes a mistake, never. And then make a conscious choice, and, and you'll need to do this again and again, to trust God's character rather than your ability to understand. Secondly, examine your heart. Maybe you need to accept responsibility for something, and if you do, take care of that. Stop blaming your circumstances uh, on other people. You know, take responsibility for your life, your actions, and your sin. And then be honest with God and ask him to forgive you and to help you. And where necessary, confess your sin to those who have been affected by your actions. And third... With all the energy you have, with the grace and strength that he supplies, walk by faith. Instead of responding with bitterness, trust God's wisdom. Instead of getting angry, choose to rest in his character. Instead of doubting God's goodness, focus upon it and thank him for it. Because God is good. He is truly good to us. And he always will be. Amen? Let's stand and pray. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood we have been set free and Lord give to us a passion for your word that we may grow and walk in all your ways on behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro We hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you.